Hello, welcome to the inaugural episode of Article One. This is a Voice of the People podcast, and today we have two fantastic interviews with people whom I respect and admire greatly. Firstly, is going to be Acting Governor Sysadmin, who was recently taken on the role after being confirmed as First Secretary, and Chief Judge Thanos, who is on the President's shortlist for possible Chief Justice nominees. We have some great insights from the Chief Judge on his judicial philosophy, some of the court cases that he feels strongly about, and how he perceives that he might uh, fit into the current Supreme Court if he is to be nominated and confirmed. And Acting Governor Sysadmin gives us a peek into how he feels the executive in Jefferson is being run and what he hopes to achieve during his time as acting governor before Governor Dallas returns. This is Article One. In our very first interview with acting governor sysadmin, there were some technical difficulties Uh, There's some slight audio delay and a little bit of the audio levels being messed up. Uh, You'll notice throughout the interview, it seems that I'm cutting off the acting governor. I promise I was not intentionally interrupting acting governor sysadmin. Just technical difficulties and delays. I will do my best in the future to try and minimize these issues. But um, in this first question, I had asked uh, Sysadmin how he felt about being put into the role of acting governor so soon after his confirmation to the first secretary. And partway through his answer gets cut off a little bit, but he's saying that he will miss being the attorney general, but he was excited for taking on the role after being confirmed. Thank you so much for sticking with us through the first episode of Article 1, and now to our interview with Acting Governor Sysadmin. Uh, I was rather excited to get into the role. Uh, Of course, I'll miss the general. Uh, Of course, it's the chief uh, legal officer of the state, so very important to work on ensuring people's rights are protected. Um, shortly before I left, the office was looking into an antitrust case over, um, you know, the internet, the tech giants, Google, Apple, Facebook, etc. Uh, but it was very important, and I think arguably more so important for the state that we have a secretary of state, a lieutenant governor. So I was very uh, honored when I was asked to take on that task, and it's fairly clear that the Parliament felt the same way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it, it did seem that vote. Parliament was very strong in your favor, and, and I think that that was a smart move for them um, after so many different first secretaries had been shot down. I think it, it, it's very, uh, well, specifically, uh, the most recent nominee was MP Ryuki. So I think it's great that we now have uh, acting, or excuse me, a first secretary and now acting governor. Do you... Do you feel that it was um, a surprise or, or, or any, were you, were you aware that the governor was going to name you uh, as acting governor so quickly after your confirmation? 
No, I was actually not aware of that until after I was confirmed. Uh, so shortly after the confirmation, she told me she was thinking about it. And then after that, she had named me acting governor. Did you see that you uh, were going to be needing to take on those that role so quickly after being confirmed? Did you see that uh, the governor was struggling in any way before they, they named you as acting governor? Uh, not so much struggling, but there certainly were weak points, mostly in the areas of uh, record keeping, as we had seen with, um, well, some of the executive orders and what not being not being logged. And it was brought to my attention that potentially one of the amendments didn't go out for referenda. So certainly in those areas, um, there was room for improvement, which was one of the things I had addressed during my hearing is making mm -hmm. sure our record keeping is all up to date. But in terms of the actual, but there was I didn't a feel of a, that anything was. a technical was... delay there. You said in the in the executive there was what? There could always be a stronger presence of mm -hmm. you know governing and taking action, but I don't think anything was notably okay. missing yeah. or being done poorly. Um, do you do you have any plans for your your time now? Uh, however long you might be acting governor, do you have any specific plans? Sure, yes. Uh, so through the Office of Governor working to um, continue some of the, the tech inquiry and, and strengthening consumer protections, especially against these more kind of modern monopolies is very important. Uh, strength, working to strengthen general, as I do know that was something that was important to Governor Dallas. So, so you may pick up the mantle To strengthen there. worker protections. Um, in addition, mm -hmm. yep. Um, and then, in addition to that, looking at tech infrastructure in the state, and um, especially tech infrastructure, as we saw with the recent news that Huawei's, mm -hmm. you know, not really doing stuff in the state. So, really working, especially mm -hmm. to make sure Jefferson is on top, uh, tech-wise and infrastructure-wise, as we saw with the pandemic which luckily mm -hmm. has now been mostly dealt with. Um, but, you know, we're going to need internet infrastructure into the rest of the century easily. And it's quickly becoming, you know, right. the, the newest public utility. And we need to address that. Also, in addition to that, working to ensure we're adequately protected, both at the government level and private citizens are safe in their data and, you know, their cybersecurity is up to snuff. And looking at the state of our education in Jefferson, because that doesn't seem to be something, mm -hmm. and uh, more at the higher education levels, uh, that doesn't seem to be something that's been addressed. By so the so uh, strengthening data protections, so. uh, increasing tech infrastructure, uh, addressing some of the higher education uh, loss or, or higher education focus that we might have lost over time. And you're, you're planning on, can, would you be planning on continuing in the governor's footsteps of focusing as strongly as she has on the the coronavirus, uh, the pandemic, at least in regards of maybe relief or the continuation of seeking immunizations, making sure those are, are being distributed properly. Is that something that you're going to be 
working on as well? Or do you think that that has largely been handled at this time? Uh, oh, of course. I'll certainly, I mean, it's not done until right. it's, it's done. Uh, so that will certainly be something I'm looking at, but at the same time, as we've seen, thanks, especially to the actions of the previous governors uh, in Jefferson, um, pandemic mm -hmm. has been dealt with fairly well. Uh, so mm -hmm. not that it can ever take a backseat, but it can, we can certainly look at other priorities, but no, the pandemic will certainly be at the forefront, um, until we are able okay. to fully return to normalcy every you know right. everyone is vaccinated and is there anything specific that you'd like to see governor dallas uh address if, if you're unable to address it in your time as acting governor is there anything specific you'd like to see her take up the mantle on um maybe some of your goals you could aid uh, her in as for secretary uh upon her return to the capitol oh absolutely any of uh, the goals i previously mentioned but i'd especially Love to see uh, when she comes back her take up uh, her worker protection stuff. Uh, one of the reasons why it was sort of lower down on the list of things I want to do is um, when she returns, I think it would be best for mm -hmm. her to deal with those. Right. So I do certainly love Because that was something that she strongly focused on in her platform was worker protections. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. Uh, it, uh, that should be Governor Dallas's mantle in that situation at least. Uh, have you have, had any difficulties with the executive cabinets, especially seeing as the cabinet is missing some appointments? Uh, not so much difficulty because as mm -hmm. you had said, there isn't too much mm -hmm. of a cabinet there, uh, which is certainly something, which also dovetails to your previous question. Uh, I would certainly like to fill out the cabinet and if I'm not able to, or if the governor returns, I would love to see her fill out the cabinet. Uh, it's pretty important that we certainly fill the key positions, but I think in general it's important we build out a well-rounded cabinet to advise the governor. Uh, Do you have any plans for any nominations uh, in your time, to not cabinet nominations uh, during your time as acting governor? Sure. Well, obviously I want to see if I can run them through the governor um, and double-check that she has no objections. To any of them, but I am looking for okay. yeah, all right. People, so. um, now, seeing as you've been in uh, your role as as acting governor for a few days now, and and uh, see, seeing some of the reforms that you've put forward as it just largely, I don't want to say correcting necessarily, but but making known publicly some of the executive orders uh, in the past had small errors. Uh, you, you do seem to be quite on top of the, the role of gov acting governor. Do you see yourself running for governor in the next state election? Well, I, thank you for saying that. Uh, I'm not entirely sure yet. I think it's a little too soon uh, to say. I'm not sure what I'll be doing next month, this month right now, with the federal elections mm -hmm. that we're gearing up towards. But I don't entirely know yet. Um of course, it, we'll have to see how the rest of the term progresses mm -hmm. when the governor comes back. So I'm not entirely sure at this time, essentially, fair. is what it boils down Totally to. fair. I mean, it's a lot of responsibility, uh, definitely, especially some, uh, having to take it on so quickly after your confirmation. I'm assuming you're kind of just settling into the role. So 
be uh, quite surprising if you suddenly decided to take up this role in the next session. Uh, how, uh, speaking of uh, the session, how do you currently feel about the, the state of parliament? Like the, the members, the MPs, how do you feel about how parliament is progressing, both uh, while you were there uh, as MP and now um, with myself being your proxy? How do you feel about the state of parliament? Sure. Well, I think it's an interesting mix, you see, because I mean, as you're familiar, uh, one independent, one member of the SDP and two members of the GLP, uh, which kind of informally have a 3-3-1 mm-hmm. split. Uh, and most things have have also seemed to kind of breach um party lines and, and whatnot, which has been interesting to see. And there's been several bills that have, or there was the one bill that passed unanimously. Um, and Parliament hasn't passed too many bills yeah. yet this session. It's been uh, a little quiet, but I do know, you know, people are working on things. So expect to see some interesting stuff come through, but I think it's been a very, so far mm-hmm. kind of collegial uh, affair so far um respectful yeah i would agree so, it's an encouraging parliament to see the only thing that would probably be nicer is if there was more legislation put forward but in terms of the tone and dynamics of the parliament i don't think there's anything yeah really that's, problematic that's so uh acting governor sis Sysadmin, uh, is there anything else you want to add and say to our viewers before I let you go and get back to your duties? Uh, no, just that I'll, you know, my office is always willing to take your emails and calls. And please let me know if there's anything right, you'd like you to see. Thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. And in this week's other news, federal races are just around the corner, and with five seats up for grabs in the Senate, it's going to be just as heated as the November race was. Uh, Voice of the People is predicting that the elections in the North and Jefferson will be races to watch, with the Dixie races being anyone's guess as to who might be running. With the current incumbents being Lotor in the North, Malcolm and Ethan in Dixie, Valerie in Jefferson, and Rika in Puerto Rico, these races could shape up to either flip the Senate majority or give the Libertarians a supermajority, and it's anyone's guess how that might play out. The Senate docket is finally starting to address bills from the left-wing House of Representatives, and it seems like there will be a continuation of the congressional ping-pong that we have seen before. With the current Autism Research Act of 2020 in debate in the House and the EMP Act at vote in the Senate, both bills seem to be on their way back to their respective chamber of origin after being amended. With the most recent tweet from the President about inaction from Congress, it seems curious that he would insinuate that the House is ignoring the Agriculture Act, which is questionable in the amount of relief it would give, when the President himself allowed the Federal Economic Security Act to sit on his desk for 10 days without so much as a peep. With the bill short-titled FESA, providing financial relief to millions of workers who are currently or who may become unemployed, 
One must ask why such a landmark piece of legislation would be ignored by the president, but the Agriculture Act is so highly favored as to receive public recognition from the president. We at Voice of the People are unsure of how many bills will reach the president's desk as we close in on the second half of the Sandoval administration, but what we can see is that the majority of bills which have been signed or enacted over the last two months are from the Social Democratic and Global Labor members in Congress. Left-wing Representative Viper Darius, Dixon Representative Jeb, Jefferson Representative and current acting Governor Sisteman, and Jefferson Senator Epsilon are just a few of the sponsors who have seen their policies enacted. This may play to their favor if any of these Congress members are seeking re-election on the 8th. Last, but certainly not least, the We the People Amendment was brought forward for ratification by Dixie Assemblyman Randy W. just before we rang in the new year. Even with no debate on the bill being brought forward from the Libertarian members, it was still no surprise it failed to reach the two-thirds majority necessary to be ratified by the state under the Libertarian majority in the Assembly. But with Assemblyman Randy W. stepping out of bounds of the typical Libertarian platform, which has pushed for the continued status quo of corporate personhood on multiple occasions, one has to ask if he will see any backlash within his party regarding the introduction of that ratification resolution and his vote in favor, which followed. Just a quick update. We have seen that the Senate passed the EMP Act on January 3rd, right around midnight. The uh, EMP Act was friendly amended in the Senate and has been introduced on the floor of the House and skipped committee. We can assume that the EMP Act will likely be passed via unanimous consent since the bill was friendly amended in the Senate and has consent of the sponsor to skip committee. Just real quick before we move into our final interview with Chief Judge Thanos, I do have to sincerely apologize for any uh, audio issues you might hear. Uh, there might be some slight audio delay, or you might hear the clicking of my pen. It is a slightly nervous tick, and I promise to remo remove all pens from around me in the future to avoid that clicking sound popping up in any future episodes. I really appreciate you sticking around with us through the first episode of Article 1 and hope to figure out all these technical difficulties so that our future episodes can be much smoother. And now for Chief Judge Thanos. Thank you, Chief Judge Thanos, for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you today. So I was interested mostly in your uh, upcoming possible Supreme Court nomination uh, that has been rumored around. You you do seem to be one of the front runners, uh, especially since President Sandoval has released his his possible nominees. You are on that list and do seem to have high favor. Uh, is there anything you could tell us about how uh, you came to that nomination or, or how you feel that uh, President Sandoval came to pick you for that nomination? Um, I think it's uh, it's certainly an honor to be considered for the position uh, of Chief Justice for the Supreme Court. It's a, a high honor for anyone who is a jurist of any distinction um, and of any 
career path in, in the in the courts. And so it was, I was very honored to be asked by the president to um, come to the White House and interview uh, for consideration for the nomination. And so as he released in, uh, in December, there's a number of other uh, potential candidates that he's also interviewing. And those interviews are still ongoing. And um, I haven't been told when any sort of nomination will be made public. Um, so that is to be seen. But we all know that uh, Chief Justice Lamport, his resignation is coming up in the middle of this month. And mm -hmm. likely soon thereafter would be, or soon right before then, would be the president's uh, nomination. Um, I am certainly, like I said, very honored to be considered. It has been uh, a pleasure to uh, discuss my uh, judicial philosophy, my uh, record on the D.C. Circuit Court, um, and when I was uh, a state justice, as well as my uh, career and tenure as attorney general for both uh, the federal government and the northern state. So it's been a great experience to discuss that with uh, Sandoval, President Sandoval, uh, just like I did with uh, President Garland when he uh, considered me and nominated me to the DC circuit. Well, I, right, right. Uh, I would assume that there's maybe something you feel specifically uh, encouraged the the president San, Pre president sandoval to nominate you do you feel like there's any specific opinions or rulings you've made that uh, placed you high in his favor on that list or or at least gave you enough uh, reputation for him to consider you as a nominee i think what's really notable um about uh the dc circuit and in my tenure on it uh, is that I have thus far not had a single case be appealed to the Supreme Court, except of just recently having the case of um, Murphy Colbert v. Uh, the Commonwealth of Jefferson. Uh, that final ruling was, uh, was appealed to the Supreme Court, but other than that, all of my rulings uh, were not. And I take that to mean that both the uh, petitioners and the respondents in all of those cases, no matter if I ruled in either of their favors, uh, found my judgment to be agreeable and not something that needed, that they further thought would need uh, to be appealed or would need to be changed. And they, and they found it as an agreeable uh, conclusion and decision. And so I think that alone showed my um a, a really good track record for for me on the court uh, at the dc circuit and i think that's among the many reasons why i was why i was considered i obviously don't know if there is any specific cases um i i can say that the the president has uh i've discussed my reasoning in many of the cases at, on the dc circuit that I've given. Um, he's asked me about some of them and I've discussed with him in length um, in, you know, in more depth of why I came to the conclusions that I did in some of those cases, but he hasn't indicated to me his 
agreeance or disagreeance with any of my opinions. Um, he's kept a rather neutral uh, tone to that, which I think is rather admirable. He's, I don't think he's choosing someone that is perfectly aligned with his, his own judicial philosophy or what he thinks uh, the conclusions of certain cases should have been. Um, and so he's, I think, considering uh, those of us on his shortlist based on our experience, um, our intelligence, and how we are able to approach the bench and uh, to enact justice in a fair and impartial way. And I think those are the characteristics that he's looking for in the next chief justice for the Supreme Court and not necessarily whether or not he agrees with a decision that I have handed down or any of the other justices uh, have handed down that are on the, that short list. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you mentioned judicial philosophy, uh, his, his, the president's judicial philosophy. What would you classify your judicial philosophy as? Um, it's, you know, I always think it's an interesting, that, that question, because a judicial philosophy, a, a lot of parts of being a jurist, you we aren't handed formulas. You know, we're not mathematicians. It's not that something, you know, that if I tell you I am a an X, Y, or Z, you know, sort of jurist in my philosophy, then you will know exactly how I will rule in every case because there's a formula to it. Um, it you know, there's more nuance to that. And so there's, um, so I, I try not to define my judicial philosophy by any one or term, but the way I approach it is that it's, that some people would describe it as more of a textualist view. I first approach the law of how the law is defined, how you read the law, um, and what that law is meant to do. Read, you know, this, simply the text of the law is where you start, and that's the basis of textualism. Um, mm-hmm. And going then from there, it can change. I, I think there is definitely um, areas of law where there needs to be more room for interpretation. Um, I think definitely when it comes to the Constitution, um, I I take from the originalist view to help inform the intent of uh, you know certain clauses or certain provisions in the Constitution, but I don't take that as mm-hmm. being definitive because we don't we don't have record of every single. A minute detail of the Constitution and then giving us every possible question that we might have about the Constitution. There's there, there are many areas that are vague enough that either you can't answer based off just a, a plain reading of the text or you can't answer mm-hmm. based off, you know, reading a Federalist paper or, you know, mm-hmm. notes from one of the, you know, from the Constitutional Convention or statements from framers and writers of the constitution. So you have to then approach it from a more of a, a other factors come into play in that when you, when you read, mm-hmm. when you, you know, and, and it also comes down to the case that at hand, what, you know, the specifics and the facts of the case and what's being, um, what's being appealed and what's being argued. So my, my philosophy is really, 
just employing all the tools that I can as a jurist to come to the decisions that I come to. And I, mm-hmm. I lean on the text of the law and I lean on um, what that text then leads to. That's where I, what I lean on, and at least at the core and the basis of my philosophy. And then where that leads me to can lead me into multiple different directions. And that's why I say I can't define myself as one way or another. One or the other. Yeah, you know, correct. Some, you know, there's some justices who were very predictable in how they were did their cases or their decisions because mm-hmm. they were really headstrong or really uh, um rigid in their view of the constitution or, or of the law and then there are others right. that were more fluid in how they viewed the, the case on mm-hmm. a case-by-case basis and it, it changed and so I, I i would i would categorize myself more in the middle of that i'm not saying my you know from case by case it's a completely different way of how i approach the law and i'm not saying that i don't have any you know sort of structure to how i do it um but it's not like I, like I said at the beginning, it's not a formula. There's no bits and pieces. Yeah, would you... Right, right. Would you say that there's a specific case or, or an opinion that you, ruling or... Is, uh, excuse me. Let me start over. Would you say that there's a specific ruling or opinion you've given in the past, whether it be in the North or here in the circuit court, uh, that you feel gives a good synopsis of a time where you were able to either... Uh, display your judicial philosophy or if there was a time maybe you took something and were able to give a unique ruling uh different from maybe how another how another jurist would be or judge jurist judge excuse my language uh (laughs) interchangeable uh, yeah that's how how another uh judge might give such a ruling in that scenario i would say especially one that's definitely unique and and in a case that had very little um uh case law itself had very little case for me to rely on case laws for me to look to whether it be as in, in terms of precedent or just other cases on the topic was um Jed v. Uh, Jed Marshall versus the United States uh, concerning the Seventeenth Amendment, and whether or not that mm, the Seventeenth mm-hmm. Amendment was violative of the of Article Five of the Constitution, and in that one, mm. um, like I said, I was definitely leaned into the textualist view, or the very much it started at the text when it came to that case because. The, the issue in that case was um, the, the, the phrase in Article 5 uh, that no state shall be deprived without its consent of its equal suffrage in the Senate. And the petitioner's mm-hmm. argument was that changing the way in which you elect or send senators to the Senate was changing suffrage in the Senate. And since not all states consented to it, they don't... Um, then then the 17th amendment would be unconstitutional because it violated that provision of article five um i Mm -hmm. came to the i came to the conclusion that that was uh not true in that the 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 discussion of equal suffrage in the senate only specifically referred to the number of senators in the senate 
So, you know, every state getting two senators. You know, if we passed an amendment that mm-hmm. said one state gets three senators, but this other state only gets one, and this state gets four, and, you know, if we, if we change that up, I mean, constitutionally you could, but you would, mm-hmm. in line with Article 5, you would have to have the consent of all the states. So that would mean that one that would that right. that would, that would com- mean that that kind of an amendment would require mm-hmm. un- unanimity among all states um, rather than right three, not fourths, the typical right. three four and that's sort of mm-hmm. the um, only exception in article five to what you can and cannot amend in the constitution the other thing in the constitution was the proportionality of population and uh and um considering you know, counting population and counting, you know, at the time, counting slaves as three-fifths of a person, changing that, you couldn't change that before the year 1808. That was specific in Article wow. 5. And yeah. so, the, so there was only two provisions, was the 1808 provision and equal suffrage. And, you know, we're long past 1808, so the only other, mm-hmm. you know, the only other restriction that we have in Article 5 is that as long as the Senate has equal suffrage among the states, then all other amendments to the Constitution are, are possible. And definitely, like I said, were that case, and in my opinion, I briefly touched on the idea of unconstitutional constitutional amendment theory, and that there's only other two other countries, India and Honduras, that have this sort of rather blanket power to the judiciary to rule constitutional amendments unconstitutional because it violates um you know they sort of categorize it as like a value of the constitution not that it violates some sort of specific thing like you know you can't you know amend the constitution to say that the color blue is actually red like you, there wasn't like actual text that says what is an unconstitutional constitutional amendment it's literally just right the, you know if if something is violating a value or a moral of the constitution then that can be ruled unconstitutional and that's only used in indian honduras and that's sort of the kind of idea that some people propose when it comes when it came to the 17th amendment and i found that 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 we don't have that in our constitution or that that's not a, a really valid um constitutional law theory to have in in the united states with our constitution because i feel i found that article five only laid out two two avenues in which a constitutional amendment can be considered unconstitutional you know as long as you know it it passes the requisite um amount in the house and the senate or you know on petition from the state conventions and is ratified Mm -hmm. by the you know, requisite number of states or state conventions, you know, as long as that is followed, the, then the only other way to make something considered unconstitutional would be if it was not, uh, if it was taking away equal suffrage in the Senate. So, so yeah, I, Jed Marshall of the United States definitely is that opinion that elucidates my what sort of the foundations of my judicial philosophy yeah the mixture of yeah, your philosophy and, and... yeah right and it, 
it also give gave you a chance to almost set precedent in that scenario because like you were saying there wasn't really a lot of case law um or previous precedent to mm-hmm. to work off of um to build from in that ruling um or opinion so that that's very interesting actually uh I, and i do think that I mean, just from my layman's perspective, I think the the ruling seems fair. Uh, And I think if that case were to be um, filed again or, or, you know, uh, submitted again in a different way, I think that that you, in a way, would be setting your own precedent now to be looking uh, in on when uh, that case was argued. And uh, I think that's a very strong point for for your career especially now with the the possible nomination to to chief justice i think that's a, a really wonderful thing for you to have on your resume um now i have a, a kind of a slightly strange question but in, in your study of of case and and case law, uh, is there any opinion that was or ruling that was given in the past, like whether it be uh, since your time on the courts, whether it be in the North or, or the Circuit Court, um, or or your time, you know, well before your time, say when the Supreme Court was first established, is there any specific ruling or opinion you feel like was ruled incorrectly, or or one that you feel you would change? There is a case. Is, um, it's it's docketed as 18-09 and, and, and entitled Butterlands v. United States, but of course we had many Butterlands v. United States in, during that um, during that year of the court. But eight, in 18-09 had to do with um, a couple executive orders and you know other case law, uh, other uh, laws, two different laws. Um, and the, the question before the court was that the first off that the certain executive orders themselves were um, unconstitutional or were illegal because they violated law. Um, but the one part, the one part of the that decision that the court gave that I very much disagree with that I don't find, you know, the court didn't give any uh, reasoning. Um, or didn't give any basis for this decision, and I don't find it to be have any have any uh, basis is that uh, in the two sentence long decision that the court gave, in the second sentence the court says that furthermore the court finds that bills from Congress repealing executive orders are unconstitutional now and going forward. Um, this. I don't find to be at any basis in the Constitution. There's no basis in the Constitution that says Congress can't pass a law that overturns an executive order. Um, there's no provision in the Constitution that says that. There is no, you know, discussion on that that I, you know, in my many years of reading the Constitution, have seen. Um, and so I don't mm-hmm. find that decision to be any validity. And so I always found that um, to be a really bad case or a decision from the court. And um, you know we, we haven't seen any 
objection to it. Um, I, I can't remember of any recent times uh, Congress attempting to pass a law to overturn an executive order. It, it is an unusual tactic for Congress to do. Obviously, Congress can do it mm-hmm. because as long as you know, as long as they have veto-proof majorities, they can easily pass a law that a president may not like. And of course, if a if a law is overturning an executive mm-hmm. order, um, that's likely an executive order that the sitting president has has given or is refusing to uh, repeal themselves. And so. Um, you know, Congress would have to do that with veto-proof majorities, very likely, and so it was. Uh, so that that's one case that I I find to be very uh, incorrect in in its reasoning. I think one of the the infamous uh, mm-hmm. Butterlands case, you know, that's considered Butterlands the United States, and this one was eighteen dash o three, which had, which basically attempted to erase corporate personhood um, in the law. Um, Mm -hmm. It was very, again, this was in a a time when in the courts, uh, post-2018, in that that era of the court, gave rather odd rulings at many times. Some, Some good rulings were handed down, some very, you know, I, some rulings I would agree with especially when it came to some of the actions in the Northern state by the communist party at the time that were just obviously mm-hmm. at face blatant violations mm-hmm. of the constitution. But um, some of these mm-hmm. cases, like a complete, uh, you know, attempt to erase citizens United, although many have their issues with citizens mm-hmm. United as, as attorney general, I argued um, that uh restrictions on donations and campaign contributions and election spending are constitutional on the basis that they meet a government interest and can't be narrowly tailored um, and Mm -hmm. not that Mm -hmm. any restriction at all is outright violative of the first amendment. I think that there are, you know, there are, we have many, Mm -hmm. many a, law and many a regulation that does regulate speech and other you know and expression mm-hmm. and assembly and our ability to petition uh, and you know on and on religion but just but mm-hmm. they are upheld as constitutional and so so then i sort of leading into then another case that i would i although i understood the reasoning of the court in that case um this was 19-9 computer guy the united states 19-9 and in this case in, in a rather somewhat short opinion the court overruled butterlands yeah and i agreed with oh them yes in that, right in that case very much and so there's times where I've argued in front of the court and very much agree with what they have decided. Mm-hmm. Right. The rulings, even if they're not, or, or the decisions, even if they're not in your favor, uh, when they are, are well-written, when the opinions are well-written, it can 
shift even your own ideology or, or, or at least your understanding. Um, would you yeah, say that's accurate? That, you know, like sort of like how I said, when it came to the DC circuit where all but one of the cases in which I have made decisions, uh, no, neither side, the petitioner or the respondent haven't appealed. And in and, and finding that, I I, mm-hmm. I hope that the reasoning is they haven't appealed because they find my decisions to be fair and to be the right outcome, mm-hmm. and, and and that it you know it was the right mm-hmm. outcome, and it wasn't in so much to lean to one side or the other or one argument to another to the point where the you know the losing side in that case finds itself to have to to not find that that decision to be agreeable and and, and have a feel a, a need to right. uh, appeal it um so in your uh with your your fairly good track record or or it seems nearly pristine minus the the recent stay and appeal of the Jefferson v Commonwealth um or excuse me uh, uh Murphy Colbert v. Commonwealth of Jefferson. Um, would you say that uh, you'll you'll have a a good relationship? Should you be confirmed to a Chief Justice? Would you say that within the the current ideology and philosophy of the sitting justices that you'll have a good relationship with them? Do you see yourself to be more of an outlier philosophy uh, in, in your judicial philosophy? When there? I began uh, my arguments before the Supreme Court and and began really my career as uh, an attorney general and uh, really began practicing constitutional law. Uh, the chief justice soon thereafter, what, you know, in a rather short time of when that occurred was is chief justice Lamport. And so I've argued many, many cases before Supreme Court uh, where he was chief justice, where he, all the pretty much all the cases that I can remember, I'm pretty sure he was chief justice, and he definitely guided my judicial philosophy in that in arguing the case before his court, um, and then seeing the decisions that then come then come then out of them, I can see where I can concede where I was wrong in my arguments, and and find where you know the court came to the decision that they came and learned from that and so i think i would be a good fit on the court because i don't think that i would be um, an outlier i would be if i were to be nominated Mm -hmm. and confirmed which would be a great honor i i'm confident that i would be able to continue the legacy that Chief Justice Lamport has in being and leading a pragmatic court, a court that's not leaning to some idea Mm -hmm. of, you know, conservative or liberal or right or left. You know, the court in most cases, there's very few cases of, of recent times where the court has not been unanimous. And that is striking mm-hmm. when uh, one member of the court is a staunch was a staunch libertarian um, when they were in politics, 
the other was a member of, you know, rather, uh, you know, left progressive uh, socialist parties. But despite that, they join in many of the opinions. I mean, one notable one, which is really, again, shows mm-hmm. that the court, you, the that their pasts don't dictate their judicial philosophies. And even if their judicial philosophies can be very opposite, um, they can still come together on certain decisions is mm-hmm. um, in uh, Polyman v. United States, which is docketed as 20-9. Um, uh, Associate Justice Yamir and Patty joined in the majority, but Chief Justice Lamport was in the dissent in that opi- in that uh, opinion, and in that case, and that, mm-hmm. that was interesting because that case, the how you would think, you know, most people would think that uh, Justice Yamir and Justice Patty are are. Yeah, a staunch "quote unquote" or, yeah, liberal and a staunch or very conservative. Or very, you know, yeah, uh, rig- you know that you would think that they would be almost polar opposites in their in their judicial philosophies, but they are able to join mm-hmm. in a majority opinion in which the chief justice, who is more so in the middle between sort of what people would view as the two the two sort of other sides of the court. Um, is in the dissent. Mm-hmm. And so that shows that unlike mm-hmm. before, and, you know, even even before 2018, when, you know, the, when the court was made of, of nine justices and often was split 5-4 on various decisions, in those decisions, those 5-4 mm-hmm. decisions, it wasn't every case that the Supreme Court decided was split by one vote. The vast majority of cases decided by the Supreme Court before 2018 and even after 2018 are unanimous decisions. And so justices in large part are in agreement on a vast majority of constitutional law um, because, like like myself, I I believe a lot of uh, justices approach the law beginning at the text. And I think that's the, the only way you can start. Is beginning at the text mm-hmm. what it says, and if you, you're the question before you can be answered simply by a reading of the text, then it then there's your answer and there's your decision. And I think that's where that's how why a majority mm-hmm. of decisions are unanimous. And when they are no longer unanimous, when they're split by one vote, or there's more than uh, you know that there's someone in the dissent in the dissent on the court, is when there's more ambiguity. In the law where you can't answer it just based off the text that's mm-hmm. when the court is becomes split or be or or is not in unanimous agreement mm-hmm. it, sometimes sometimes it can be in unanimous agreement even if there is ambiguity but um but i think that, that right yeah it depends on the arguments and depends it really depends on, on the arguments in that uh, situation the case and what's going and what's being discussed and being brought before the court and so that so sort of that's a really roundabout way to answer your question of if I would be an outlier on the court I don't think I I don't think I would because I think (laughs) I would fit right in with the justices in that in how all other justices before them have fit together 
and they have been able to be in agreement mm -hmm. with one another, to dissent from one another, um, to be in unanimous decision with one another, um, and and still, you know, yeah. Maintain right. the yeah. law in, in that as the, as the foundation. Implore fair and equal justice, and despite differences, despite the differences of philosophy, political background, anything like that, that they are still able to come to those decisions mm -hmm. that are in the best interest of the country and are in following with the law and the constitution. Yeah. So just one last question before I let you make your uh, closing remarks. Uh, do you feel like you'll be nominated? And, and if you are nominated, what do you I, what do you think your chances of being confirmed? are? I'm hopeful that I will be nominated and that it would be in honor of a lifetime to be nominated to be chief justice of the Supreme Court. It would be an even higher honor to be confirmed. Um, so then I am hopeful in that in that that's a, obviously a you know it's to just be considered is an honor um i'm not going to speak ill of any of the other members other you know the other people who are being considered uh in the short list that has been released mm -hmm. by the president but i will say that i i do find my track record speaks for itself and that my interview thus far with the president has been fruitful and that he will see that I am fit and capable of assuming the role of Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And when it comes to my confirmation, uh, I know that when I was confirmed to the DC Circuit that my confirmation wasn't unanimous. Um, and I certainly don't anticipate it to also be unanimous um, because for whatever reason, there's always other interests when it comes to uh, confirming a justice that, you know, those of us who are, get the honor of being mm -hmm. nominated usually are not of the political branch. Even though I had a political past myself, you know, voted on a Supreme Court nomination myself when I was a senator um, I know that there are more interests that are involved when you are in the political side of it when you are you know, you know that there's many mm -hmm. other factors that come into play when you are considering a judge or a justice for the court so I, I would of course love to be confirmed I hope to be confirmed if I am nominated and um, just like I think that my track record speaks for itself and my interview was fruitful enough for the president, I would hope that the Senate would see the same in me that the president would see in me if he would to choose me uh, as his nominee for Chief Justice. Um, and I think all the other people on that shortlist who are currently serving in the judiciary would be perfectly capable of taking up the mantle of Chief Justice but I, of course, am biased in favor of myself and, and, and think that I would be deeply honored, but also perfectly equipped and uh, capable of taking up the position. 
Uh, you you hear that here, folks? Uh, for uh, breaking news, the the judge, uh, Chief Judge Thanos, is biased towards his own nomination. <laughs> uh, Chief Judge Thanos, do you have any uh, final comments uh, you'd like to make uh, to our listeners? As a judge, in the time that I have served on the DC Circuit, um, going on close to six months. Uh, when you view the court as a, a litigant before it or as just an outsider or especially as a politician you may view sometimes judges as a left a right judge or a liberal or a conservative judge but in my time on the court and in that practice i have found that there is no such thing as a conservative or a liberal judge or a left or a right judge. There are only judges and justices that are doing their best to uphold the law, to apply the law, and to interpret the Constitution in a way that is in line with its intent and its text. And although you may disagree with them, and although sometimes they may align together in certain blocks or not, that we are not politicians. I am not no longer a politician, although I had a rather long career as a politician. I am not a politician when I am sitting on the bench. I am not a politician anymore. I'm not a member of a party. I don't have political interests in the case before me, although I understand that the both sides do have political interests when they come to before me at times. Um, that the judges sitting on the bench, we are not there to be politicians. And I would hope that in this time when we are considering who will be the next Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, that we keep that in mind, that I am not running a political campaign. Um, anyone who becomes nominated will not be doing rallies or putting up posters for you to vote for them. You know, they're not going to be campaigning. They, it's... In essence, it's a job right. interview, and it's a it's a, a very important job, and it's a very important position. So mm -hmm. I would hope that your uh, listeners would remember that that we are not politicians; we are judges and justices who have a sworn duty to uphold the law and apply it as we see as best fit. Thank you so much for. Uh joining me today judge chief judge thanos it's been a you, real honor and me. very enlightening to get to talk to you thank you again article one is a voice of the people podcast mm -hmm.